I'm so thankful for how God works. You know, I felt led to talk about, just uh, throw Psalm 95 out there to you whenever I stood up here just a moment ago. Um, and I did not know Jared and the team had planned that next song. It's just amazing how the Lord does that. And we get to have these moments of prayer together as a church where if you have something heavy on your heart, you get to come up and someone with bad coffee breath gets to, <laughs> or cough drop, gets to pray for you. These are, these are good moments that we get to have in God's presence. Amen. Amen. Uh, one of the things too, that's, uh, uh, may or may not uh, be in front of you is that uh, this Wednesday night we'll be doing uh, what's called a pastor's prayer meeting and that is a time for us to come together and uh, to learn how to pray the scriptures and that'll be on Wednesday night as well and if you're interested in being a part of one of our midweek uh, groups that'll be kicking off this week please go to the connection point you can see those there as well as uh, on the app and so I encourage you to come back Wednesday night as we keep going deeper into scripture and God's presence together um, I want to begin with prayer, and then we're going to dive into uh, week three of the Free Methodist Way, where we're looking at the values that shape us and shape our vision and mission as a church, as we want to fulfill the Great Commission by living the Great Commandment. Uh, week one, we talked about life-giving holiness. Week two, we talked about love-driven justice, and this week we come to the topic of Christ-compelled multiplication. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much because you are so good and you are present. You're right here with us. As we open your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for each and every one of us collectively as a whole, but also as individuals this morning. Lord, would you speak? Would you speak? Your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. Amen. The Free Methodist Way states on the topic of Christ's compelled multiplication, that from the beginning, God's intention was to have a people from every nation and culture and ethnicity united in Christ and commissioned to carry out his work in the world. We believe that wholeheartedly. We believe that the, from the very beginning, God's intention, his purpose, his plan was to have people from every nation, every culture, every ethnicity, every tribe and tongue. And he wants to unite us all in Christ, which is the only thing that can unite such diverse people. And then we, as his people, we're commissioned. And you may be sitting there going, when was I commissioned? You were commissioned when you made your first profession of faith. You were commissioned if you were baptized as an adult. When you make that first profession of faith, that is your commissioning. You are then sent from that moment on into the world to continue to profess your faith in Christ. But that begs the question, what is Christ-compelled multiplication? It's a really good question. What is that exactly? Again, I think Christ-compelled multiplication is a phrase that simply reflects God's heart for every tribe and tongue for every people group all over the planet. And it's also a way of encapsulating Paul's words when he says, for Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us because we, the church, are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We're convinced of this, Paul says. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Christ's love compels us. What Paul's communicating is that when you experience the love of Christ, it so radically changes your life that it compels you to tell everyone who will listen that you too, they too, can move from death to life. That's the whole point, that I am dead in my trespasses and sin. I'm dead in my own ways. I'm carrying guilt and shame, and I can leave all that behind and find new life in Christ. But that begs the question for us, how compelled are we? Like, think about it for a moment. How compelled are you? I have to ask myself, how compelled am I? Are we as compelled as much as we've experienced Christ's love? So how much of Christ's love have we experienced? Because that is the extent to which we will be compelled to share. Do we really have good news for every single person? Do you have good news for somebody? It's what we call it. It's the gospel. The Evangelion, the good news, good news meaning history-changing event, the good news about Jesus Christ, his death for you in your place, resurrection, third day, life you can now have, a resurrection life, but do you really have that good news? Do you see it as good news that you get to share with others? How compelled are we to share our faith, not just in small, nice, quaint, random ways? But every day we're on the lookout for someone we can share the good news with. I think these are questions we have to ask ourselves. How compelled are we to tell people they, they can literally have their life changed here on earth, but also their eternity changed forever because of what Christ has done for them? This is what we say we believe. But do we actually tell it? How compelled are we? Christ's love compels us. When Paul writes those words, he's writing to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians. I want to go to 1 Corinthians, the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Again, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. And I want us to look at some of the earlier words of Paul that leads him to this point where he will say eventually in 2 Corinthians, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians is this. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in Ephesus, and he wrote this in the spring leading up to Pentecost. We know that from 1 Corinthians 16, 8. Paul probably wrote this letter, uh, or he wrote this letter really, in, um, his, uh, when he spent three years in Ephesus doing ministry, and probably in 53, 54, 55 AD, somewhere in there. Okay, so spring of the year, 53, 54, 55, Paul's in Ephesus, he writes to the church in Corinth, and there are a lot of themes throughout this book. If you've ever read it, there are a lot of topics and themes mentioned. One of the major themes of this book is that Paul wants the church which is divided, divided by the arrogance of some of the more powerful members, arrogance of some of the more powerful members, it's divided, and Paul wants them to understand as a church as a whole that they can work together to advance the gospel and that they must work together to advance the gospel. 
And he wants them, as one person put it, to drop their divisive one-upmanship. You know how we get in that game of telling stories and you, know, you start telling a bigger story and a bigger story. He wants to get out of that so that they can be an effective witness for the gospel to which Christ's love is compelling us to share. So that, that's what he's driving at here. Now, Paul says a lot of stern things throughout 1 Corinthians. If we go in reverse order through the book, what we see is that at the end of the book, the book ends in 1 Corinthians 16, 23, and 24, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. That's how Paul ends the book. And what he's telling them there or what he's showing us, he has this deep affection for this church. Not only that, he wants this church to be a church that brings God glory. That's why he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He wants them to be a church that shows the glory of God, displays that to the world around them. Not only that, he wants them to be a church that understands and is a well-constructed dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. That's why he asked them the rhetorical question, do you not know that you are God's temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16? But all of that is to the end of 1 Corinthians 1.8, where he says, I want you to be presented guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that at the very beginning of the letter, guiltless, and that's why he's telling them all of this. He loves them as a church. He wants them to bring glory to God. He wants them to understand that they have the Spirit of God living within them because he wants them to be presented guiltless, holy, when Jesus returns. Now, in order for Paul uh, to convince them of this, he has to convince the church that even though they do not all come from the same place, they do not all have the same background, they, they, they do not all have the same family or come from the same ethnic group, Paul wants them to see that they do have the same Spirit of God living within them and that the wisdom of God is nothing like the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is nothing like the wisdom of the world. So in doing this, Paul makes the case that every single person can share the gospel of Christ, can be a gospel multiplier, I'll put it that way. And at the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 26, 26 through 30, there are three movements here, and then I want to go into chapter 2. The first movement we see is that a gospel multiplier, if you're going to be a gospel multiplier in the world, it's based on calling and not an earthly inheritance. It's based on calling, not an earthly inheritance. We see it in verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Notice that phrase, worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Notice powerful. And not many were of noble birth. Notice noble birth. Notice he tells them, I want you to consider something. I want you to slow down and think about something. I want you to consider your calling. And then he gives them the identifier, brothers or brethren, some translations say. This is this all-encompassing word or language that talks about the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Because we are children of God, those of us who know God through Christ, right? And God only calls people who are his children to spread the gospel. And so he says, I want you to consider your calling brothers. There's the identifier. This is who he's talking to. And the qualifier for a, to be a gospel multiplier has to do, what he's saying, is it has to do with your status before the Father in eternity, not before some people, person, or panel on earth. The qualifier for who we are as gospel multipliers on the planet has to do with who we are before the Father. And many times our activity or our inactivity in the kingdom 
has to do with how we think about ourselves, how we see ourselves. But that shouldn't be the case. And what Paul wants them to see is that you are not how you define yourself. The question is, what does God say about you? And so he says, I want you to consider your calling brothers. See yourself, your identity, as being a part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, because from that comes your calling. And he says, I want you to consider this, meaning that this, I want you to have this train of thought about yourself. Have this train of thought about yourself. Now again, notice in that verse, he says, you are not, not, many of you were not wise according to worldly standards, power, or noble birth. We'll come back to that. Movement two here is not only is being a gospel multiplier based on calling, not earthly inheritance. Number two is being a gospel multiplier understands that God inverts human status. God takes our systems and he flips them on their head. We see this in 27 through 29. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. God inverts the whole economy. And Paul is encouraging those who are in the church. Remember, I told you one of the issues here is that there are some in the church, very arrogant, powerful people in the church trying to take over, make all the decisions. Paul is encouraging them, those who feel less than, whether it be by status or circumstances, to understand God's inverted economy. And Jesus said this is how it was going to be. Jesus said those words, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind, speaking spiritually, John 9, 39. Jesus says, this is how it works in the kingdom. It's an inverted kingdom. And the gospel inverts human hierarchy every time. Where the wisdom of this age becomes the babble of fools. And the grittiness of the gospel becomes glorious in the heavens when it's manifested on earth. That's why sustainability of an earthly status is so limited. It's just a title. It's a place in society. It's there one day gone tomorrow and can be gone like that, but not in the kingdom. Not in the kingdom. When God establishes you in a place, it is eternal. When God gives you a calling, it is eternal. So a gospel multiplier is based on calling, not earthly inheritance, and a gospel multiplier understands that God inverts human status in the way the world defines things and people. Number three is that a gospel multiplier understands that God's wisdom produces what the world cannot give. He says this in verse 30, and because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. It's Christ Jesus who is the wisdom to us from God. What, is it, what does that wisdom tell us? He tells us three words, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's wisdom from God. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Meaning this wisdom did not come from me. It did not come from this world. It came from Jesus, who is the image of God, the perfect image of God, Colossians 1, to us, conveying that wisdom about what it means to be righteous. What is sanctification? What is redemption? 
Now you may say, why does he use those three words? Remember verse 26. Remember verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's corresponding worldly standards with righteousness, power with sanctification, and noble birth with redemption. Do you see that in verse 26 and 30? He says, you can live your life off worldly standards, especially around wisdom, or you can live your life off God's wisdom, which is righteousness. And righteousness always leads us, it's heaven's wisdom leading us in right relationships with God and with others down right paths. That is righteousness. So it's worldly standards are God's standards in Christ. You can try to be powerful in this life. You can try to get as much power and control as you can have, or there's another way to live. It's called sanctification. That's where you give up earthly power and surrender to your Father in heaven. Or you can lean on your pedigree, noble birth. Or you can lean on your new birth, redemption. Redemption. Where no matter what your earthly pedigree is, you can be adopted into God's family. You see, he's talking about this all in terms of wisdom because you and I, we're going to evangelize for something, aren't we? We're all going to be evangelists for something. You get a new product, you like it, you go tell people, right? This is what we do. We are naturally evangelists. I went to a, this um, uh, like demo days, this golf day, when, and there, there's this golf club called PXG. And uh, I went up and I was hitting the golf clubs thinking, can't afford this, but it's really, really nice, you know? And uh, the person didn't have a business card, they had a poker chip. And I was like, well, that's interesting, you know? And, but on the poker chip, it said PXG evangelist, not salesperson. And I thought, that is so true. We're all evangelizing for something. We're all sharing some kind of wisdom. The question is, is it God's wisdom or the world's wisdom? See, we will share either through giving advice or answering questions. We will share what we believe falls into the category of wisdom. We're going to evangelize for something. Again, the question is, where did it come from? And what values does it align with? So Paul wants people to see that if you're going to be a gospel multiplier, it's based on calling, not an earthly inheritance. God inverts inverts human status as we think about it, but what we get in Christ is wisdom from heaven that leads to righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And then he shows us this is what it looks like. He says, I want you to understand your calling, your status, the source of wisdom, and then Paul says, here's what I did among you. Chapter two, verse one. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers did not come by proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. It's another way of saying worldly standards. Wisdom from worldly standards. I didn't come with that. When I showed up in Corinth, that, that's not what I was doing. That lofty, they're referring to the persuasive speeches, mainly of Greeks and also Romans how they present arguments and convince people and the logic they, they would use. He said, I, I didn't do any of that. You see, Paul knows that gospel multipliers, they do not try to make themselves known, but Jesus known. So he said, I didn't come and this was about me. Verse two, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only thing, the, the forefront of the conversation was Jesus, who is the Messiah, and him being crucified. I Meaning he died for us, right? So Paul is saying, I didn't come 
exercising earthly power. It's not, it's not how I did it. I just came and I kept Jesus at the center and the circumference of the conversation. And then, verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And then he says, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If we ask the question, how, how are we, how do we be gospel-centered people? How do we live out Christ-compelled multiplication? I think he tells us right here in 3 through 5. Look at verse 5. He says, so that your faith might not do something. Your faith. I think if we're going to be people who multiply the gospel, we have to have our own faith. You cannot live off someone else's faith. We try. We try. But you have to own it. And in owning that, you own a gift that is from God. Scripture over and over tells us that faith that we have, it is a gift from God. Jesus said it, John 6, 29. Paul said it, Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 8, and others. It's a gift from God, but we have to own our faith. We have to move from an inherited faith where all these people have told us things about God to an embedded faith that that faith is deep within us and we own it for ourselves. That's what, that's what Paul wants here. It's a result in verse five. So that your faith, not, not just somebody else's faith, he wants their faith and our faith to be grounded. So that your faith might not rest in, that phrase not rest in means to be like, uh, to exist like, to be identical to. He does not want our faith to be like, exist like, be identical to what? The wisdom of men. The wisdom of men, that fallen human, self-preserving, self-glorifying logic that the world uses. He says, I don't want you to live that way. You can. You can live and try to live with you at the center of everything, but it's just it's a fallen way to live where you're just always looking out for yourself. You're always trying to glorify yourself instead of the God who created you. He said it's a fallen logic. He says, but instead of being identical to the wisdom of men, the wisdom of this age, I want you to see the power of God. Now that word power is translated power, powerful strength, might. About 20 times it's, uh, it's uh, translated miracle. He says, I, want you to, I wanted you to see a miracle of God. That's exactly what happens when God's power shows up. It is a miracle. It's the supernatural breaking into the natural. And right here, Paul tells us exactly what it takes to be a gospel multiplier. You see, whenever I say the phrase gospel multiplier, you're, I mean, a lot of times we just automatically think, oh yeah, I believe in that for preachers. For the super Christians, right? Yeah, I believe in that. You know, for somebody who went to seminary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Done a lot of people a lot of good, let me tell you. Paul right here tells us, here's, here's how you know you're ready. You want to be ready? You, you want to share 
the gospel. You want to know that you're ready to be someone who opens their mouth and, and shares good news, shares Christ crucified and resurrected with somebody? He tells us. You can do it the way the world does it. The world says you need qualifications, some experience, and you become an expert. And then as an expert, you go back and help other people get some qualifications and experience so they can be an expert. Or, I think God looks at qualities over qualifications. And so what he tells us here, what Paul tells us, there's two things. You need to know Jesus, right? You cannot, will not give what you do not have. You need to know him. And then number two, chief qualifier outside of knowing Jesus in order to be a gospel multiplier, watch it, is you have to. Have to. I would say it's a prerequisite, but you have to. You have, I would say this is so important. You have to, absolutely have to. Don't miss this. You must know Jesus and feel inadequate. You must feel inadequate. You remember verse three? Paul says, and I was with you. This is Paul. Like 13 letters of the New Testament, Paul, right? Maybe 14 if you ascribe Hebrews to him. This is Paul. And I was with you in weakness and in fear. Hello, Lord. And in much trembling. Sometimes you just got to own it, you know? Just own it. There you go. Weakness and fear and much trembling. In my speech, my message, we're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. He says, I don't want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, when you get out of the way, I'll put it this way, you got a choice to make. It's either me or a miracle. Either it's about me, but as long as it's about me, yes, Lord. As long as it's about me, I won't see a miracle. But when I'm out of the way, when I'm living in that place of feeling inadequate and fear and trembling, I don't know how this message is going to sound. That's when God's power shows up and we see miracles. And so I want to encourage you. While we may talk about a value like Christ compelled multiplication, and we may see, say, well, yeah, we as a church do that. No, that's for you. It is for you. You are the church. And all you need is to know Jesus, feel inadequate, and I promise you, if you'll just step out and open up your mouth and share who he is, you'll see miracles. You'll see miracles. And that's what I'm praying for this week. I pray this week that you guys will see a miracle. 
that you would dare, when given the opportunity, to share Jesus in some way as God gives you one of those coincidences, you just open your mouth, you'll see a miracle because his power will move through you when you're moved out of the way. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for those moments when we are very much aware of our Savior and we see him and we know him. And Lord, I pray that those are early and often in our life. But Lord, I thank you the most today for those moments when we feel absolutely inadequate to be a gospel multiplier. I pray that we would see it's based on calling It's based on your wisdom that inverts the world's wisdom. It's based on your son through whom we see righteousness, sanctification, redemption. God, I ask and pray that in those moments when we feel inadequate and fear and trembling, we're not sure we have the words, that we would simply open our mouth and let you speak through us by the power of your spirit. Lord, this week, would you help us see miracles as you work through us to multiply the greatest news the world could ever be given. Lord, I pray that Christ's love will compel us. Let it be so. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.